This is lecture number 10b on Deuteronomy by Robert Vinoy of Biblical Theological Seminary. We introduced Roman numeral 3 last class, and it is the centralization of worship and its implications for the date of Deuteronomy. I think what I will do here is present to you initially the content of an article, which I think is an excellent article, on this subject, and it's by a man named D. Halwarda. He was a Dutch Old Testament scholar who died in his early 40s about 10 years ago. He was a young scholar at the point of his death and had begun to publish and do some tremendous work, but the Lord took him. He wrote an article on this issue published in this little book that is only available in Dutch. I sort of boiled down the essence of the book, at least initially, and I want to give you this material because I think he sets up the problem very nicely, and from it you can get a handle on the issues involved in the centralization problem. The title of his article is, The Place Which the Lord Your God Shall Choose. Now you recognize that is coming from Deuteronomy chapter 12. And here's what Halwarda says, and I'm quoting here rather extensively. Few Bible readers realize that in this phrase we are confronted with the root problem of modern Old Testament study. Yet that is the case. Now, he may have slightly over-exaggerated or overstated his case here, but I think there is some value in doing that. I continue with the quote. The root problem of modern Old Testament study is found in the phrase, the place that the Lord your God shall choose. This is so because it is this phrase concerning a legitimate place of worship in Israel which formed a key to the first part of Wellhausen's work on the history of Israel that later became his book, The Prolegomena to the History of Israel. The key to that work centers around this phrase that I just mentioned. Halwarda says, quote, One can say that this study, The Prolegomena to the History of Israel, was the great turning point in Old Testament study, and in spite of criticism of the details, subsequent to the time when it was published, for changes in method and research, it was indeed a primary document. It still keeps its dominant position until the present day. So thanks to Wellhausen, Deuteronomy chapter 12 has become the springboard for a completely destructive criticism of the Bible, but it's left almost nothing of the Old Testament intact. Now, what Halwarda is doing is attaching enormous significance to Wellhausen's interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 12 as the core of Wellhausen's whole JDP hypothesis. I continue with Halwarda. What is more remarkable is that Wellhausen gave an exegesis of Deuteronomy 12, which, for the most part, has the agreement of the majority of Bible-believing exegetes. He read Deuteronomy 12 in the sense that all the offerings of Israel were to be bound to one sanctuary at a central place of worship, which ultimately became the temple. All the offerings were bound to that one place of central worship, and every altar outside of Jerusalem was considered illegal. Every offering that someone brought from another high place, for example, was illegal. Why? Because it was not brought to the place which the Lord had chosen. So Deuteronomy chapter 12, according to Wellhausen and according to most Bible-believing exegetes, demanded this centralization of worship. 
Deuteronomy 12 meant that worship was forbidden in any place other than that central sanctuary. Exclusive rites were at the temple. I continue quoting Halwarda. He says, The point in which Wellhausen and most Bible-believing scholars differ is that while the latter maintain Moses as the writer of Deuteronomy chapter 12, Wellhausen placed the writing in the time of Josiah, who was the first one to get rid of the high places and restrict offerings to the temple of Jerusalem. End quote. So that Halwarda is positing here is the basic agreement between Bible-believing exegetes and Wellhausen in the meaning and interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 12, which, according to both, declares a centralization of worship. The only difference is that Bible-believing exegetes would say that Moses wrote this around 1400-1200 B.C. Wellhausen, of course, would say that it was in the time of Josiah, 621 B.C., and that he was the first one who tried to wipe out the high places and make the exclusive center of worship in Jerusalem. So that from the Orthodox side, the chapter would be placed in the time of Moses and written by Moses. Wellhausen believes that this is from the time of Josiah, and it is Josiah's attempt to centralize worship where he is located in Jerusalem. Wellhausen's reason for the 621 B.C. date is this regulation of exclusive worship, which he says is impossible to conceive of any earlier time. His theory is based on a view that the center of worship went through three discernible stages when you study the historical sections of the Old Testament. If you look at the historical sections of the Old Testament, there are three discernible phases of evolution concerning the place of worship. The first phase was this. The altar was not tied to a specific place. There were many altars in many places of worship. At the time of Judges and Samuel, you find many altars in use. It appears that the people took over the high places of the Canaanites, and no one had objections to putting altars at almost any location. At the time of Samuel, he offered at the high places, so religious observances could be held almost anywhere. Wellhausen said that later there was divine approval to the existing places of worship, by asserting that their origin was due to the appearance of the Lord at a particular place. This is called a theophany, which then legitimatized a place as a worship site. The Lord appeared at Bethel and at Shechem, so they were legitimate places of worship. But in the first phase, there was no thought of worshiping being bound to one place to the exclusion of all others. Wellhausen's idea of the early, more free kind of worship you have the spontaneous kind of religion and every occasion of life that would give rise to an expression of thanksgiving, there was an altar nearby where sacrifices were performed. But slowly, according to Wellhausen, change began to set in. We're still not to the second phase, but change begins to be set up under the influence of the early prophets Amos and Hosea. Criticism began to arise against the unbridled cult. With the rise of the prophetic movement, they began to proclaim that true worship was not the offering of the blood of bulls and goats, it was ethical living instead. The prophets didn't desire cultic activity. They wanted a proper way of life. They wanted ethics. 
It wasn't that they opposed multiplicity of altars as such, but they saw a danger in a religion that laid stress on the cult because the moral demands of God did not get their due when people went flocking to the altar and just went through all the motions of the ceremonies. Thanks to this opposition of the prophets, this again is all Wellhausen's theory, and Halwarda summarizes it, the high places lost their significance. Moreover, the political situation slowly led Jerusalem to come to the foreground. After the fall of Samaria in 722 B.C., there was no longer competition from the northern kingdom as concerns cultic observances. At about the same time, the prophet Isaiah proclaimed in the south the unassailable position of Jerusalem. Jerusalem then begins to get center of attention by the time of Isaiah. All of these factors together led to the second phase in which Jerusalem and the temple became dominant. Wilhausen said it was understood that a radical abolition of the entire cult could not succeed, so there was an attempt at reformation and concentration. Now, you can't entirely obliterate the cult. Prophets were opposed to it, but they couldn't entirely obliterate it. So there was an attempt to concentrate it, reform it, and that prophetic influence was behind this development. But even though the prophets and the priests were deadly enemies, basically two different spheres of religious concern, yet the prophets and the priests worked together in this matter of reformation and concentration. They had a mutual interest there. Because the priests in Jerusalem had a great material advantage from concentration of worship in the capital, the prophets promoted the same, also in connection with their monotheistic concepts of God. So you need really to stop talking, as Wilhausen did, about the God of Bethel, the God of Beersheba, the God of all these places. There was one God, and one legitimate place of worship. So through this common influence, prophetic influence and priestly influence, that all comes to bear on the attempt of Josiah to wipe out the worship at the high places and in every place in the land except Jerusalem, and that was his great reformation in 621 B.C. And that reformation is the second phase. And yet, that attempt was doomed to failure. People were attached to the holy places. As soon as Josiah died, worship returned to these places. The Reformation would never have had a remaining effect, according to Wellhausen, if it had not been for the exile. Because of the exile, where the people were uprooted completely and taken out of the land, and the whole worship system was broken off, this forced a revaluation of worship. When Cyrus, in 539 B.C., gave the edict that permitted the return of the Jews back to Judah, there was a generation that had never been able to sacrifice at all. They hadn't grown up with the old practices of earlier time. And only at that point was there a generation of people that could dedicate their heart and soul to the accomplishment of the reform ideas of the centralized cult. Which then brings us to the third phase. The exile made this complete break with the past. And after the exile and the return, the people no longer thought of establishing high places. They just accepted as self-evident the goal of the prophets and the priests before that there should be only one place of worship, and that was at Jerusalem at the temple. That's the third phase. 
the post-exilic time of real adherence to one place of worship that was never experienced before that. We want to go on a bit further with setting the background to Wellhausen's position and to understand the key role that chapter 12 plays and then see what the chapter says and what we do with it. I will continue to summarize for you the article written by Halwarda on the place which the Lord your God shall choose and the significance that he attaches to the interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 12 in connection with Wellhausen's whole structure of his JDP theory. And in the process of that, he begins, that is, Halwarda, he begins by mentioning that Wellhausen's theory went through three discernible phases with relation to history of worship in Israel. So there was the first phase in which there was multiplicity of sanctuaries. There was a second phase with the influence of the prophets in their opposition to multiplicity of sanctuaries and in favor of centralization of worship. But that was not entirely successful until after the exile, when we come to the post-exilic times. Then you come to the third phase, where you do have the establishment of the central, exclusive place of worship. So that was generally the development that Hawarda sketched, and we discussed that a little before. So let's pick up from that point, then, these phases of history of Israel's worship in connection with place of worship. We review again, multiplicity of altars, centralization of altars, whatever, there is that progression that Wellhausen saw, and then post-exilic view. Now, to continue, Wellhausen said that not only did history move in these three phases, but we discover the same three phases in the law given. Not only did the history of worship move in that sequence, but the laws of Israel, you find the same three phases represented. The reason, he says, that is that the altar law of Exodus 20 corresponds to the first phase of the theory, multiplicity of altars. The altar law is found in Exodus 20. Now, Exodus 20 occurs in the Book of the Covenant, and in verses 24 through 26 you read, An altar of earth you shall make unto me, and shall sacrifice thereon your burnt offerings, and your peace offerings, your sheep, and your oxen, in all the places where I record my name, I will come unto you, and I will bless you. And if you will make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you lift up your tool upon it, you have polluted it. Neither shall you go up by steps unto my altar, that your nakedness not be discovered thereon. And that is chapter 20 of Exodus, verses 24 to 26. Now, note the phrase, quote, but in all the places where I record my name, end quote. The Lord will come unto them there, and the altars that were built in various places should correspond with the description that he lays out. But according to Wellhausen, the altar law of Exodus 20 presumed multiplicity of altars according to the first phase. That law can be attributed to J or to E or the JE document and that the picture of multiplicity of altars reflected their correspondence to the historical picture provided by these two sources, J and E. Now, when you move on further, Deuteronomy chapter 12, according to Wellhausen, demands destruction of the heathen places of offering and commands that the Lord be worshipped in one place. 
So that Deuteronomy then, in the law in Deuteronomy chapter 12, correspond to the second phase of this development, according to Wellhausen. Of course, as we discussed before, Wellhausen puts that in 621 BC, when Josiah promoted his Reformation. Of Wellhausen's JDP sources, that leaves only P, and according to Wellhausen, P is clearly later than D, because in D, centralization is explicitly commanded, and thus must still be finding existing contrary places, but P does not lay stress on that anymore. P just assumes that one central sanctuary is normal. In that document, there is only one place. According to P, there was never any other place of worship. It is just a matter of assumption. There is one place of worship, and it is not a matter of conflict with the multiplicity of altars. In the time of P, they presumed there was only one place of worship. Everybody's in agreement with that. He then assigns that to the third phase, to post-exilic times, for the origin of the P document and the origin of the centralization of worship entirely. Now, Wellhausen finds that sequence that we've mentioned confirmed by other matters. We don't want to get into all of that, but the force of Wellhausen's system rests not on just one single point, but he brought to bear on this issue coming from a lot of different directions, and his evolution of worship is sort of something that comes to conclusion on the basis of a lot of converging evidence. This is just one factor that is key to the theory of the progression and relation of the place of worship, not only historically, but also legally. He has one firm date, and that's 621 B.C., and that D document. So he worked back from 621 to an earlier time, then he worked the other direction subsequent to 621 to date this post-exilic material that he calls P. Of course, the result of what we have been discussing does havoc to the entire Old Testament, because what serves as foundation for the Old Testament, after all? It's the Pentateuch. Wellhausen divides the Pentateuch up into JEDP source documents, and none of them are any longer foundational, because Moses, rather than being the foundation for all that follows, Moses, according to Wellhausen, is the result. He's the outcome. He's the final point that is reached in the history of the Old Testament religion. Religion in the older times was no different than the Canaanite religion. The Lord was simply a God, no different from other Canaanite gods. So that the starting point for Wellhausen's system is not Mosaic revelation, but early Semitic heathenism. What Wellhausen's system does is run from heathenism up to Moses. So what, according to the biblical structure, is the beginning? The Mosaic Revelation. For Wellhausen, Mosaic Revelation is the end. That's where everything is moving, particularly in the prophetic movement, towards monotheism, centralization of worship, and ultimately working out the implications of that and the Levitical legislation with its detailed ritual emphasizes this. That's the final point. Now, in the process of doing that whole line of destruction of multiple worship sites and progress towards centralization of worship, the prophets are left hanging in the air, because the prophets then are no more reformers standing on the foundation of Moses. The prophets don't proclaim the old ways and call the people back to them. The prophets are innovators. 
They're proclaiming new ways. So the function of the prophets is not to defend and proclaim the way of Moses, you might say, that had originally been revealed as over against heathenism, and to call Israel back to their argument that Israel is distinct from heathen origins. But the prophets lead the people by their ethical preaching from early heathenism and bring them finally to Moses. That's what Wilhausen's theory does. The prophets lead people by their ethical preaching out of heathenism and really bring them to Moses, the Moses of Wilhausen's system. Now, that's basically Hawarda's assessment of the Wilhausen system. I think that gives you some insight into it and gives you somewhat of a handle on it that may be useful. If you read Wilhausen's Prolegomena, it is an enormously complex book. I think the presentation in Halwarda is helpful in seeing some of the implications of it. Halwarda's main point is that the history of opposition to Wilhausen's theory is mostly directed against various details of his system rather than getting at to the heart of it. Of course, not that the details aren't useful too, but according to Halwarda's approach here, the heart of this system is the centralization of worship issue, and that's the key point in Wellhausen's whole system. That's why, as I mentioned, Halwarda said at the beginning of his article, and I quote him again, Few Bible readers realize that this phrase, the place that the Lord your God shall choose, we are confronted with the root problem of modern Old Testament study. End quote. That's why he feels it's so significant. I think Halwarda may have overstated his case, but still there is something here that has enormous implications. Now, what does he do with this? He points out that there are examples in the historical books of the Old Testament covering the time from the judges up to and including the time of the kingdom period, where the multiplicity of altars were obviously referred to in the historical books. He says it's difficult to be satisfied with saying that the worship in each case at these different altars that are mentioned was illegal. He points out there are examples of worship that were illegal and not in accordance with the law. For example, starting in Judges chapter 17, the worship that Micah promoted described in those later chapters of the book of Judges where that private sanctuary was set up with the Levite, obviously idolatry was involved there. It was illegal worship. Also, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, setting up his calves at Bethel and at Dan certainly was intended to be a rival worship center to the worship in Jerusalem, and as such, these centers were condemned as sin. But all of that, Hawarda says, does not take away from the fact that in this period the multiplicity of altars per se was not condemned, but sanctioned. He points that out in a number of cases. In the case of Elijah, in the time of Ahab, in the northern kingdom, where he opposes Baal worship and the prophets of Baal. After that showdown with the people on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18, when Jezebel comes after Elijah, he becomes very discouraged. He flees from Jezebel and he goes out into the wilderness. And in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 10, he's in a cave resting. And the Lord says to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah replies, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, 
thrown down your altars and slain your prophets with a sword, and I, only I am left, and now they are seeking to take my life as well. Well, one of Elijah's complaints is that the people had thrown down the Lord's altars, in the plural. They had abandoned the altars of the Lord and apparently were following the heathen altars. It wasn't long before that, up on Mount Carmel, that Elijah himself erected an altar. In 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 31, we read, Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord and made a trench around the altar. End quote. Then Elijah prayed, and the Lord responded to that prayer, and you don't get the slightest hint that there is any illegality connected with his building an altar apart from the Jerusalem altar. You get the suggestion, at least in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 10, that a point of valid criticism against the Israelites of that time was that they destroyed the Lord's altars. It is also at least of interest, as Halwarda points out, that we never read once of prophetic opposition against the multiplicity of altars. There is no element of the prophetic message that is explicitly directed against the multiplicity of altars. Now, if that were an issue, it would have to be an argument from silence. You could at least charge the prophets with neglect of this issue. Why didn't the prophets come out strongly against the multiplicity of altars? The books of Samuel are particularly important on the issue of multiplicity of altars. Samuel was a prophet. He was a reformer. He built various altars, and he sacrificed at various altars. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, he goes to a high place in Ramah and offers a sacrifice in the town of Ramah. In 1 Samuel 7 and 1 Samuel 10, Samuel offers sacrifices at Mitzpah. And in 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 15, he offers a sacrifice at Gilgal. So you have explicit mention of Samuel offering on altars at Ramah, Mitzpah, and Gilgal. You also have the reference in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 2, of his making an offering in Bethlehem, which seems to be divinely sanctioned because, notice the context, quote, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil, and go, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided myself a king among his sons. Go and anoint one of the sons of Jesse. Samuel says, How will I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. End quote. Well, Saul was the king, and Samuel's going to anoint another king, so Saul would be very much opposed to that. Well, what does the Lord say in answer to Samuel's question? The Lord says, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, that seems like it had been such a normal practice for someone to take a heifer, go to Bethlehem, and offer a sacrifice that it would not arouse suspicion whatsoever on the part of Saul. In a subsequent occasion, after David had been anointed and Saul was still king, David was not at his place at the table of Saul that we read about in 1 Samuel chapter 20. Then Saul's curiosity was aroused as to why David wasn't there. And we find in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 24, and I'm quoting here, David hid himself in a field. When the new moon was come, the king sat down to eat, and the king sat on his seat as at other times, even on a seat by the wall. And Jonathan arose, and Abner sat by Saul's side, and David's place was empty. 
Nevertheless, Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something may have befallen him. He's not clean. Surely he's not clean. End quote. In other words, it seems that it must have been some sort of cultic meal, because the first thought that Saul said was that David was not ritually clean to be able to come. But then on the second day, and we read again in Samuel, Saul said to Jonathan, Why comes not the son of Jesse to the table, neither today nor yesterday? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, I pray you, for our family has a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. End quote. So again, he goes to Bethlehem. Why? To offer a sacrifice. His brother had commanded him to be there for it, and that was the reason why he wasn't at Saul's table. So that local offering at Bethlehem was apparently a custom at that time, and no one saw any deviation from the law because someone was going to a different place, i.e. Bethlehem, to offer a sacrifice. But then some say these were unstable times. The temple had not yet been built. And Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 10 says, When you go over Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God gives you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies round about, so that you dwell in safety, then there shall be a place which the Lord your God shall choose to call his name to dwell there. End quote. In other words, after the Israelites had achieved rest, then there would be centralization of worship. So frequently the point is made that Deuteronomy says this, and Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 11, is the point at which those conditions were realized. Now, Second Samuel 7 is that chapter which contains the promises of the Lord to David concerning David's house, or dynasty, that the Lord was going to establish forever, when David had asked if he could build a house or a temple for the Lord. In verse 11, again of Second Samuel chapter 7, it says, and I'm quoting, And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, I have caused you to rest from all your enemies. The Lord tells you that he will make you a house or dynasty, end quote. Now, some have tried to argue then that any citation of a multiplicity of altars prior to 2 Samuel 7 was sanctioned because multiplicity was permissible until the Lord gave rest and until the situation was established of peace in which centrality of worship could then function well. But even if that's the case, it doesn't help with Elijah. And in addition, Absalom, for example, even after 2 Samuel Chapter 7, verse 11, organized his revolution at the sanctuary in Hebron. In 2 Samuel, chapter 15, David sanctions the wish of his son to go to Hebron to pay a vow, again without a huge dismay about going somewhere else to sacrifice. In 2 Samuel, chapter 15, verse 7, we read, And it came to pass, after forty years, that Absalom said to the king, I pray you, let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while he was in Geshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord shall bring me again indeed to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. End quote. And David grants that to his son. And of course, Absalom then goes to Hebron and starts a revolution there. But the occasion for going to Hebron was, again, paying a vow and offering a sacrifice. 
In addition, and this is Helwarda's response to the Second Samuel 7 reference that we just read, if external enemies are meant by this matter of rest and peace, the application of Deuteronomy chapter 12 is only really possible during the time of Solomon, and then for a very brief period later, because if you're talking about external enemies, almost constantly throughout Israel's history of the nation, there was threat from external enemies. There was only a short period where there was no threat of external enemies. So, Halwarda says the rest referred to in Deuteronomy chapter 12 does not have reference to external enemies, but to internal, and that the achievement of that condition really is referred to in Joshua chapter 22, verse 4, right at the conclusion of the conquest of Canaan. In Joshua chapter 22, after the conquest and two and a half tribes are sent home on the east part of the Jordan River, we read in verse 4, and I quote, And now the Lord your God has given rest to you and your brothers, as he promised them. Now therefore return and get to your tents and to the land of your possession, which Moses the servant of the Lord gave you on the other side of the Jordan. But take diligent heed to do the commandment and the law. End quote. So you see, Helwarda sees this rest mentioned in Joshua chapter 22 and referred to in the promises of Deuteronomy as fulfilled long before the time of David. He feels it was fulfilled in the time of Joshua. All right, then, we'll go a bit further. We'll take a look at the Exodus chapter 20, verse 24 to 26 passage and see what the regulations are there, but we'll have to continue this later. That is the end of Lecture 10b by Robert Vinoy on Deuteronomy.